Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis. Chapter 4, I Broaden My Mind. Epigraph. I struck the board and cried no more, I will abroad. What, shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines in life are free, free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. By Herbert. In January 1911, just turned 13, I set out with my brother to Wyvern. He for the college and I for a preparatory school we will call Chart. Thus began what may be called the classic period of our school days, the thing we both think of first when boyhood is mentioned. The joint journeys back to school with a reluctant parting at Wyvern Station, the hilarious reunion at the same station for the joint journey home, were now the great structural pillars of each year. Growing maturity is marked by the increasing liberties we take with our traveling. At first, on being landed early in the morning at Liverpool, we took the next train south. Soon we learned that it was pleasanter to spend the whole morning in the lounge of the Lime Street Hotel with our magazines and cigarettes, and to proceed to Wyvern by an afternoon train which brought us there at the latest permitted moment. Soon, too, we gave up the magazines. We made the discovery, some people never make it, that real books can be taken on a journey, and that hours of golden reading can be added to its other delights. It is important to acquire early in life the power of reading sense wherever you happen to be. I first read Tamburlaine while traveling from Larney to Belfast in a thunderstorm, and first read Browning's Paracelsus by a candle, which went out and had to be relit whenever a big battery fired in a pit below me which I think it did every four minutes all that night. The homeward journey was even more festal. It had an inevitable routine. First the supper at a restaurant. It was merely poached eggs and tea, but to us the tables of the gods. Then the visit to the old empire. There were still music halls in those days. And after that the journey to the landing stage, the sight of great and famous ships, the departure, and once more the blessed salt on our lips. The smoking was, of course, as my father would have said, surreptitious. Not so the visit to the empire. He was no Puritan about such matters, and often of a Saturday night would take us to the Belfast Hippodrome. I recognize now that I never had the taste for vaudeville which he shared with my brother. At the time I supposed myself to be enjoying the show, but I was mistaken. All those antics lie dead in my memory and are incapable of rousing the least vibration, even of reminiscent pleasure, whereas the pain of sympathy and vicarious humiliation, which I felt when a turn failed, is still vivid. What I enjoyed was merely the etc. of the show, the bustle and lights, the sense of having a night out, the good spirits of my father and his holiday mood, and, above all, the admirable cold supper to which we came back at about ten o'clock for this was also the classical age of our domestic cookery, the age of one Annie Strahan. There were certain raised pies set on that table of which a modern English boy has no conception, and which even then would have astonished those who knew only the poor counterfeits sold in shops. Chart, a tall white building further up the hill than the college, was a smallish school with less than twenty boarders, but it was quite unlike Oldie's. Here, indeed, my education really began. 
The headmaster, whom we called Tubbs, was a clever and patient teacher. Under him I rapidly found my feet in Latin and English, and even began to be looked on as a promising candidate for a scholarship at the college. The food was good, though of course we grumbled at it, and we were well cared for. On the whole I got on well with my schoolfellows, though we had our full share of those lifelong friendships and irreconcilable factions, and deadly quarrels and final settlements and glorious revolutions, which made up so much of the life of a small boy and in which I came out sometimes at the bottom and sometimes at the top. Wyvern itself healed my quarrel with England. The great blue plain below us and, behind, those green peaked hills, so mountainous in form and yet so manageably small in size, became almost at once my delight. And Wyvern Priory was the first building that I ever perceived to be beautiful. And at Chartres I made my first real friends. But there, too, something far more important happened to me. I ceased to be a Christian. The chronology of this disaster is a little vague, but I know for certain that it had not begun when I went there, and that the process was complete very shortly after I left. I will try to set down what I know of the conscious causes and what I suspect of the unconscious. Most reluctantly, venturing no blame, and as tenderly as I would at need reveal some error in my own mother, I must begin with dear Miss C., the matron. No school ever had a better matron, more skilled and comforting to boys in sickness, or more cheery and companionable to boys in health. She was one of the most selfless people I have ever known. We all loved her, I, the orphan, especially. Now it so happened that Miss C., who seemed old to me, was still in her spiritual immaturity, still hunting, with the eagerness of a soul that had a touch of angelic quality in it for a truth and a way of life. Guides were even rarer then than now. She was, as I should now put it, floundering in the mazes of theosophy, Rosicrucianism, spiritualism, the whole Anglo-American occultist tradition. Nothing was further from her intention than to destroy my faith, she could not tell that the room into which she brought this candle was full of gunpowder. I had never heard of such things before. Never, except in a nightmare or a fairy tale, conceived of spirits other than God and men. I had loved to read of strange sights and other worlds and unknown modes of being, but never with the slightest belief. Even the phantom dwarf had only flashed on my mind for a moment. It is a great mistake to suppose that children believe in the things they imagine. And I, long familiar with the whole imaginary world of Animal Land and India, which I could not possibly believe in, since I knew I was one of its creators, was as little likely as any child to make that mistake. But now, for the first time, there burst upon me the idea that there might be real marvels all about us, that the visible world might be only a curtain to conceal huge realms uncharted by my very simple theology. And that started in me something with which, on and off, I have had plenty of trouble since. The desire for the preternatural, simply as such. The passion for the occult. Not everyone has this disease. Those who have will know what I mean. I once tried to describe it in a novel. It is a spiritual lust. And like the lust of the body, it has the fatal power of making everything else in the world seem uninteresting while it lasts. It is probably this passion, more even than the desire for power, 
which makes magicians. But the result of Miss C's conversations did not stop there. Little by little, unconsciously, unintentionally, she loosened the whole framework, blunted all the sharp edges of my belief. The vagueness, the merely speculative character of all this occultism began to spread, yes, and to spread deliciously to the stern truths of the creed. The whole thing became a matter of speculation. I was soon, in the famous words, altering I believe to one does feel. And oh, the relief of it! Those moonlit nights in the dormitory at Belzen faded far away. From the tyrannous noon of revelation, I passed into the cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed, and nothing to be believed, except what was either comforting or exciting. I do not mean that Miss C. did this. Better say that the enemy did this in me, taking occasion from things she innocently said. One reason why the enemy found this so easy was that, without knowing it, I was already desperately anxious to get rid of my religion, and that for a reason worth recording. By a sheer mistake, and I still believe it to have been an honest mistake, in spiritual technique I had rendered my private practice of that religion a quite intolerable burden. It came about in this way. Like everyone else, I had been told as a child that one must not only say one's prayers, but think about what one was saying. Accordingly, when at oldies, I came to a serious belief, I tried to put this belief into practice. At first it seemed plain sailing, but soon the false conscience, St. Paul's Law, Herbert's Prattler, came into play. One had no sooner reached Amen than it whispered, Yes, but are you sure you were really thinking about what you said? Then more subtly, Were you, for example, thinking about it as well as you did last night? The answer, for reasons I did not then understand, was nearly always no. Very well, said the voice. Hadn't you then better try it over again? And one obeyed, but of course with no assurance that the second attempt would be any better. To these nagging suggestions my reaction was, on the whole, the most foolish I could have adopted. I set myself a standard. No clause of my prayer was to be allowed to pass muster unless it was accompanied by what I called a realization, by which I meant a certain vividness of the imagination and the affections. My nightly task was to produce, by sheer willpower, a phenomenon which willpower could never produce, which was so ill-defined that I could never say with absolute confidence whether it had occurred, and which, even when it did occur, was of very mediocre spiritual value. If only someone had read to me old Walter Hilton's warning that we must never in prayer strive to extort by maestry what God does not give. But no one did. And night after night, dizzy with desire for sleep and often in a kind of despair, I endeavored to pump up my realizations. The thing threatened to become an infinite regress. One began, of course, by praying for good realizations, but had that preliminary prayer itself been realized? This question, I think, I still had enough sense to dismiss. Otherwise, it might have been as difficult to begin my prayers as to end them. How it all comes back. The cold oilcloth, the quarters chiming, the night slipping past, the sickening, hopeless weariness. 
This was the burden from which I longed with soul and body to escape. It had already brought me to such a pass that the nightly torment projected its gloom over the whole evening, and I dreaded bedtime as if I were a chronic sufferer from insomnia. Had I pursued the same road much further, I think I should have gone mad. This ludicrous burden of false duties in prayer provided, of course, an unconscious motive for wishing to shuffle off the Christian faith. But about the same time, or a little later, conscious causes of doubt arose. One came from reading the classics. Here, especially in Virgil, one was presented with a mass of religious ideas. And all teachers and editors took it for granted from the outset that these religious ideas were sheer illusion. No one ever attempted to show in what sense Christianity fulfilled paganism or paganism prefigured Christianity. The accepted position seemed to be that religions were normally a mere farrago of nonsense, though our own, by a fortunate exception, was exactly true. The other religions were not even explained, in the earlier Christian fashion, as the work of devils. That I might, conceivably, have been brought to believe. But the impression I got was that religion in general, though utterly false, was a natural growth, a kind of endemic nonsense into which humanity tended to blunder. In the midst of a thousand such religions stood our own, the thousand and first labeled true. But on what grounds could I believe in this exception? It obviously was in some general sense the same kind of thing as all the rest. Why was it so differently treated? Need I, at any rate, continue to treat it differently? I was very anxious not to. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>